Hello, welcome to In That Case. My name is Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about interesting and significant pieces of public interest litigation, cases which have shaped Australian public life. I've spoken in past episodes to Stephen Kime about the Muhammad Hanif controversy back in 2007. I spoke in episode 2 to Jason Kiwa and to his lawyer Malcolm Clothier about the case of Kiwa and West which continues to shape Australian government decision making to this day. And I spoke in my last episode to Rodney Croom who was centrally involved in the effort to get the Tasmanian anti-sodomy laws off the books in the 1990s and eventually he and others who were campaigning on the issue succeeded in that in what was a really significant step forward for um, LGBTI rights in Australia. So all of those are really interesting episodes, all of them concern issues which have some enduring significance. My New Year's resolution is to improve the audio quality of these podcasts and I want to include in that improving the audio quality of some of the podcasts which I've already uploaded to iTunes. So I will in due course have a look at those and see what I can do about um, ironing out some of the kinks in the audio. Uh, But in the meantime, even if I haven't got to doing that yet, they are worth a listen because as I say, all of those guests had interesting and insightful things to say which do have continuing contemporary significance. You can follow the uh, podcast on iTunes, you can subscribe on iTunes, you can follow me on Twitter, my handle is at TownsendJoelC and you can also find details of the podcast and all of the episodes on the website which is www.inthatcasepodcast.com. Now, today I want to talk about the case of Hale Michael and Constantinides, uh, which was a case brought by a number of young people in the Flemington and Kensington area of Melbourne against uh, Victoria Police and a number of officers of the police. And it's the first case that I've talked about on this podcast which didn't result in any final significant judgment from a major Australian court. But it's nonetheless really interesting, both because of what happened along the journey and also because although it's settled, the settlement of the case has continued to resound over the past several years uh, through Victorian public life and continues to shape policing practices here in Victoria. The story starts when Tamar Hopkins, who I'm going to be speaking to, uh, came to the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre in 2005. And full disclosure, I have some involvement with the centre, but I wasn't directly involved in this case at all, so I'm really just an interested uh, observer. But when Tamar came to the centre in 2005, she began to hear lots from young people about their contact with police and their objections to the way in which police were dealing with them. And she helped those young people pursue a number of remedies. So she helped them make complaints to the Office of Police Integrity and when they were charged with offences like resisting arrest, uh, she helped uh, in their criminal defence. But it came to a point where Tamar and her clients felt that they weren't getting anywhere 
in pursuing those remedies in individual cases. And so they got advice about pursuing a claim against Victoria Police for racial discrimination. All of these clients were young people of African background and it seemed as though there was a police practice of stopping and questioning young people of African background far more frequently than other people were stopped and questioned. And so eventually in 2008, a group of young people brought an anti-discrimination complaint. This was in some ways relatively simple. It was a, a claim of direct discrimination. There was no particular legal complexity to it. The argument simply was that police had deliberately picked out young people of African background and stopped them more frequently than they stopped other people. But of course, though it wasn't terribly legally complex, it was both factually very complex and also politically very complicated indeed. And so, though the matter proceeded through the Human Rights Commission's conciliation processes, there was no settlement reached, there was no negotiated resolution to the case. And 17 young people who were amongst the complainants in 2010 proceeded to the Federal Court of Australia. And the litigation ran in the Federal Court of Australia for several years. And there were a number of really interesting steps along the way. So one of the things that happened was a protective costs order was made in favour of the young people who had brought the uh, claim in the Federal Court. In Australian law, the general rule is if you're involved in litigation in court and you lose, you'll have to pay the legal costs or a proportion of the legal costs of the party that wins the case. And so this can be a real discouragement to people who would otherwise want to bring a claim in court. And it's particularly, obviously, a discouragement to young people who don't have much money. So what Tamar and the team of lawyers involved did was that they sought um, an order from the court that the young people would not have to carry the burden of a very large costs order against them, even if they happened to lose the case. And Tamar will talk a little bit more about that and how that was uh, both a blessing and a curse in terms of uh, their running of the matter. So that was in 2011, and then in 2012, another major development occurred in the case. Um, police produced documents from their database showing the records of the people they had stopped and questioned. This is the, it's called the LEAP database. And there was a detailed analysis done of the data that was in the LEAP database. And there were four really interesting findings that were largely uncontested, which came out of that analysis. First of all, the data showed that males of African ethnicity were approximately two and a half times more likely to have a recorded interaction with police than you would expect given their proportion of the population in the community. Uh, secondly, the data actually showed that uh, African males from the area 
the Flemington Kensington area were alleged by police to have committed significantly less crimes on average than males from other ethnic backgrounds. So notwithstanding they were being stopped more, their crime rates were actually lower. Uh, thirdly, uh, male offenders of non-African ethnicity were eight and a half times more likely not to have been stopped by police than alleged offenders of African ethnicity. So African offenders far, far, far more likely to be stopped by police than uh, alleged offenders from other ethnic backgrounds. And lastly, there was, in the view of um, the, the experts who did the analysis, a highly significant disparity between uh, the number of occasions specific phrases were used by police in relation to those with African ethnicity as opposed to uh, people who were stopped of other ethnic backgrounds. And those phrases were gang, no reason, nil reason, move on, and negative attitude. So a really interesting set of statistical findings. And obviously they appeared to show some problems in police practices. But the litigation still didn't settle and it went on until early 2013 when there was finally a settlement in the case. And that was a hugely creative settlement. The settlement allowed for the release of all of the statistical data which I've just described to you, but it also required the police to conduct inquiries which led to very substantial change in police practices and are continuing to shape practices of Victoria Police to this day. I started in my conversation with Tamar Hopkins by asking her a bit of what she saw when she first started at the Legal Centre. immediately there was um, Operation Malto the next year and so you straight away began seeing the impact of um, policing on uh, diverse communities in Flemington. Yeah, so even sooner than Operation Malto. So the, the, it was actually the first incident started in October 2005 um, and I remember going to a class to teach, to talk to students about police powers at the Debney Park Secondary College in late 2005 and just having questions asked of me that are all about when can the police stop you, when are they allowed to do this, when are they allowed to do, what happens if they hit you. Um, so suddenly realising these issues are going on for this community and that was towards the end of 2005. 2006 is when Operation Malto hit um, and there was a real spike of people uh, needing assistance and a local youth worker working closely with the local community bringing them to the legal centre and organising for lawyers at the legal centre to come down to the Flemington Community Centre and start taking statements from people. So um, yeah, it was, it was, there was a, a feeling of crisis um, in the community that this was, um, that these people were um, terrified about what was happening, what was going to happen. Parents were telling their children 
not to go to school. Um, uh, kids were, um, yeah, were not getting out of bed. There was just this sense of um, it's a crisis, it's a war zone um, down in Flemington. So, yeah, and the stories were uh, uh, quite shocking. I remember being really quite traumatised. There was one account particularly where um, a young man said that he um, had been running away from the police and that they managed to eventually stop him. Um, they pushed him to the ground um, and got him to be stationary and then put their foot on his head and smoked a cigarette while they waited for the other officer to go and get the divisional van. And there was this sense of, like, I'd just never heard of anything like that. Like, that that's not policing, that's, that's um, you know, that's brutality against, you know, that's not how you treat a human being. So uh, that was very disturbing, hearing accounts like that. Um, coming out of Flemington, as well as the constant stops, the when people denied, uh, refused to give information about who their friend's name was, they talked about being hit by tor with a torch or with a baton. So uh, um, there were, no, the police were not um, abiding by any rights or, or the law in, in the way they were policing those young people. And then, so you put in quite a few complaints to yeah. the Office of Police Integrity and they took a considerable period of time to be dealt with yeah. and almost universally um, they were um, dispatched in the same way, simply with the conclusion that there was no substance. Yeah, so w we sent them off to the Office of Police Integrity asking for that office to investigate them on the basis that this was clearly a systemic issue facing a large number of people and that was in the public interest for the Office of Police Integrity to investigate them itself. However, it referred all of those complaints down to Victoria Police. So Victoria Police did two things with those complaints. Um, it sent them to a investigator who investigated individual complaints and it also initiated an ethical health check at the Flemington Police Station. And which involved a, um, a senior officer going and interviewing all the police at the station um, and uh, many other people to try and get a grasp on what actually happened. That report, um, we have never been formally given a copy of that report or seen it, so so that's, that's still, we don't know what's happened there. Um, the individual complaints were investigated by an officer who was actually experienced by many young people as quite re-traumatising himself. He would turn up late at night at their houses and knock on their doors to speak to them, despite the fact that we were on the record as being the solicitors. So many people didn't want to speak to him. Um, at, uh, I sat in on many of the interviews and, and he was, uh, these young people were not being treated as victims. Um, they were being treated as as potential criminals. So his attitude towards these young people was was very hostile to begin with. So it was not surprising that it came back with um, unsubstantiated uh, responses. So yes, we had to do something further. So not only do we have this complaint thing going on, these some of these young people had also been charged with things like resist police, hinder police, classic police-related 
police generated um, charges where there was no underlying charge um, that kind of justified why the police were interacting with the, those people in the first place. So we ended up doing running a number of criminal defences as well and had a lot of success with having the police charges dismissed by magistrates. But it wasn't a forum where the complainant's um, uh, case could be um, could be heard. The police, the, the magistrate was not listening to a case about whether the police assaulted that person. They were listening to a case about whether they had hindered police. And so there was a, a sense of justice had been partially done, but nothing, there was no accountability for the police. So further action needed to, to happen. So you then began to contemplate um, a Racial Discrimination Act complaint and you talked to um, Debbie Mortimer SC, now Justice Mortimer of the Federal Court, and you got an advice from her and you also connected up with Arnold Bockliegler, uh, Peter Seidel, who'd run the Yorta Yorta litigation. That's right. Uh, and so um, it, I presume, took some time to get some detailed advice about that option. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we provided um, Debbie Mortimer and Claire Harris, who was um, acting as her junior counsel at that time, um, with details about what had gone on and the allegations, and they provided us with advice. Um, and that advice was to um, commence a, a race discrimination claim um, in the federal court. However, as as um, you'll be aware, the, the first stage is to go through the Human Rights Commission. So that's where we ended up initially filing the claim in 2008, in December. But yes, we also were very fortunate to have been put in touch with um, Peter Seidel at, at Arnold Block Liebler, and that was a really fantastic relationship that was formed between Arnold Block Liebler and the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. Um, very very helpful so uh, we got a huge amount of assistance um, from them in terms of kind of working up the legal claim um, and uh, you know the huge amount of paperwork that's involved in in bringing any any kind of claim like this um, as well as all kinds of there's the, claims like this brings up all sorts of little legal issues constantly and so there's just a constant process of needing to get to um, a, you know, a quick advice about what, what to do about this and what to do about that. So it was a really wonderful working relationship we had with Arnold Block Liebler. As I said at the outset, the matter proceeded initially as a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission, the national uh, human rights and anti-discrimination body in Australia, and I asked Tamar whether she thought there was any real hope in a conciliation process there, given that the allegations being made were of racial profiling by the police and might be seen as pretty inflammatory uh, and hard to find middle ground on. Well, we did, we did have hope at one point um, in the negotiation that we would get, get something because we knew that they weren't, we weren't going to get any admissions at that point about what had, had occurred. But 
they could have at that stage come to the party with some of the ideas that the young people were having about what might solve the problem in a systemic way. And so, um, you know, we did actually have hope that at that point there was a possibility that we could get a resolution. Um, so, but unfortunately, no, the, the stick wasn't great enough at that point in time. <laughs> and so then in, in 2010, you went off to the um, federal court and then, I mean, that's an enormous piece of litigation. And so um, there's lots we could talk about in relation to that, but two things that are really interesting um, about how you managed that was that you sought and obtained a protective costs order to try to ensure that your clients, these young people from Flemington, weren't going to be saddled with a costs order um, of any um, very large amount. And also you had, on the way through, at various points, applicants notwithstanding the protective costs order dropping out. And so you had some, some who saw it right the way through and some for whom it became too much wondered if you could talk a little bit about yeah. those things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, I think the protective cost order issue was actually a turning point for a number of people in terms of not continuing with the claim. So uh, one of the, what a protective cost order does is limit your liability if you lose um, to a certain amount. And in this case, we were looking at something like a capped amount of $5,000. Um, these cases are inherently uh, difficult to run. So we couldn't give any of our clients an assurance that they had reasonable prospects that we, they were going to succeed because this is a this is public interest litigation. It's inherently risky. Um, we believe we had a some really powerful arguments that we could put forward, and we could um, and we believed in in the power of their the evidence that they were going to give but nothing like this had ever been done before on this kind of a scale. And there are inherent risks when you bring something novel that has not been tried in this kind of way ever in an Australian court. So it was really important that we, um, we protected the liability of these young people. Um, many of them have gone on to have successful careers. Um, one of them is now a, um, an engineer. Um, uh, working for a local council. So it, these others have gone on to, to have very successful careers. So we we didn't want them to be saddled with a really large debt um, when they were just embarking in their lives, setting up families, etc. The problem is, is that this works both ways. If you get a protective costs order, um, your lawyers won't get, uh, can't get any cost recovery either. And so that meant that our legal team um, would not be able to get the costs back for their efforts if we succeeded on the case. Um, and a lot of people, um, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge thing to ask lawyers to be involved in a claim that runs for years um, and would take potentially months of court time uh, where they have to say no to all other briefs um, and not have even the prospects of getting any cost recovery for that work. So it's a really hard ask for your to put your, your legal team through this this process. So that that was that was tricky there. The other thing about a protective cost order is that um, you can only ask for one if you're running a claim in the public interest. That means that you have to forego any of your private 
um, interest in a claim, say for compensation or anything like that. And it's important to be aware that some of these young people had uh, their stories um, were involving serious assaults that had they been run as a civil claim would have given them substantial compensation. So their decision to forego the um, prospects of compensation by having a protective cost order was a really difficult, difficult decision to make. And we, it, it's also very difficult to get clear instructions from 16 young people about what they want to do when there is a variety of interests in that group of 16. So yes, very complicated um, mm. on a whole lot of fronts, not just for the young people, but also for in terms of how we were going to um, keep council involved in the case. Um, but in the end, we got instructions to proceed with an application for a protective costs order. And interestingly, we were on the, the day before the protective costs order, we had we reached an agreement with the other side where they consented to it. So there's no formal order from the court, I mean, formal decision from the court um, as to why we should be granted a protective costs order, but there is a consent order um, granting this. So we don't have any um, uh, any sort of decision to, to guide us about how these orders will be made in the future. Another key turn in the um, litigation is when you get discovery, so you get production from the police of the LEAP database records, which set out n not all of their contacts with young people in Flemington, but a large number of contacts with um, young people in Flemington are reflected in those police records. And then you go to Professor Ian Gordon and then Professor Chris Canning to do the analysis of those. So this then becomes a very statistically focused case and we're all learning to be more statistically literate, literate in this um, day and age, but um, uh, was this new territory for you and what was it like? Yeah, absolutely, this was new territory. So um, just, to, just to kind of give listeners a bit of an understanding, we were, very interested in following a, a analogous case that was occurring in New York at this time, um, the Floyd litigation, which was very much based on doing a statistical analysis of stop and searches that were happening by the New York police there. Um, and there was a particular um, expert, uh, Professor um, Fagan, who the plaintiffs in that case were had, had called on to, to give evidence. And so we had... Um, discussions with Professor Fagan about um, about um, the evidence he required and, and what we needed to get from Victoria Police in order to um, uh, make inferences that racial profiling could be occurring. And so that was very, very helpful and instructive for us to, to sort of have that, that in the background. Um, so it was only later after we'd actually um, got the documents out of the police that we were able to um, instruct um, uh, Gordon as our expert in Australia and so it was the the content of what we were able to get was was informed by those earlier discussions with the US experts um, but yeah like it, it's the other thing is that police documents are really difficult to interpret there were you know whole files of um, documents that had to be 
coded and and um, and understood and, and meaning had to be gleaned from them that would have I can see it would have taken Professor Gordon a long time to try and get his head around what was going on um, there was we had um, through the discovery process um, evidence from police about how these data systems should be understood and analysed so that was helpful but all it was all very complicated to get that data out of Victoria Police as well um, they were very reluctant to release it and we had to go back again and again and again to the court to to argue that it should be released to us and and the, the terms of that release um, so this whole process was was very very complicated but yeah then then we have this analysis from Gordon and the um, the police also hired their own expert Hendrich uh, to analyze the the data um, to to see if you know our expert could be challenged in any way and there were some minor challenges of Gordon's um, interpretation but basically uh, both experts agreed that there was um, a statistically significant evidence that um, young Africans were being policed at a greater um, rate than everyone else in the community, 2.4 times greater than anyone else, which was a very significant finding. And it, it's interesting um, looking where data like this has been achieved, has been sort of got from cases in the US, they talk about this as being a, a particular ratio. So if you have a stop, if of so if you're being stopped at a rate of one to one, to, and that's a, uh, you're stopped at a certain rate um, against the proportion of your population um, in, the, in the local community, then that's seen as absolutely benign. If you're stopped at 1.5 times that rate, then experts say, okay, there's potentially a bit of an issue here. Um, up to when you get to two to one, um, so that means you're being stopped at twice the rate for your proportion in the community, then um, that starts to be indicative that racial profiling could be going on. And we have a rate that's 2.4, so we are really in that area, in that um, that danger zone that we've got racial profiling occurring in, in our community. So that was really important evidence to get. And one of the things that um, is also in the background, not necessarily um, something that was a part of your case, but something that lies in the background of um, that analysis is procedural justice um, uh, academic literature, which says that um, people who have a sense that they're not being treated fairly by legal institutions or by the police tend to have a diminished um, sense of trust in the rule of law. And so this is impactful not only for these individual young people, but tends to be a drag on the way in which they um, see value in adhering to the legal system. Mm. So there's a whole lot of, as a cascade of impacts on young people who are, who experience this kind of treatment. As you're saying, that's right. It tends to um, reduce people's trust in not only the police, but the whole legal system when they are feeling, when they're feeling like they're targeted unfairly. Um, but it also, um, it's, it's very highly stigmatising. It, Police suspicion on of you, unfair suspicion, um, impacts on your feeling um, as a as an equal citizen. It, it affects your feeling of status. You, you're a lower lower person because you're treated in that way. 
So people end up feeling like they're not Australian, they're un-Australian, they're, they're different. It impacts on their self-esteem. Um, there's a, a huge range of impacts that, that this kind of treatment has on people. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're talking about um, it, it not just affecting individuals, but affecting, um, you know, people's compliance with the law, um, people's um, uh, acceptance and trust of, of the whole legal system. People uh, are being found to not vote as much, don't get involved in uh, working with their local councils, they're um, disengaged when they're treated with suspicion by police. So it's, yeah, it's a very serious issue. Despite largely uncontested statistical evidence, it wasn't until the matter came close to trial in early 2013 that there were serious settlement negotiations which took place. And they took place in the context of the witness list being assembled for the upcoming trial. Then uh, you issue a number of subpoenas, including a subpoena to the Chief Commissioner of Police, Ken Lay. Um, this is after I think you brought Jeremy Rapke, the former DPP, on board. Yeah. And um, that precipitates um, some hard thinking on the part of police and then there's some settlement conferences and you may not be able to say a lot about the back, um, back office machinations of all of that, but that then pushes you towards a settlement conference in, in early 2013. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was very, very dramatic. Um, and, and we, you know, obviously we don't know the minds of the, of why the police actually decided to do what they did, but um, we did see a dramatic shift in their approach um, once those subpoenas had been issued. But the other thing is that this was really coming up. We were about to start a two-month trial. Um, it would have been we would have been cross-examining the Chief Commissioner of Police about um, his, he was at the time of the complaints, the um, area commander for, for the Flemington region and in charge of how those complaints were managed. So it, it would have been hugely embarrassing for him. Um, but yeah, we were really gonna pull out the dirty laundry of the police in front of the public because media could have been there everything so it was this was going to be massive and would have occupied you know pages of, of newspaper articles i mean it did on the settlement but so they they ended up coming to a decision that they would they would settle this claim um our clients at this time very interestingly did not want to settle <laughs> so we had been you know working trying to get settlement agreements for months um had nothing, no interest from the police, and and at that time we had just given up um, any any sort of key. Um, we just weren't interested in in settling, um, and they had to actually really get the federal court to order us to attend a settlement. <laughs> so so and so we we attended, and um, and our clients were very clear that they weren't going to settle this. That they needed some some outcomes that they could. Um, that would make a difference to people in their community and reduce the chances of racial profiling to occur. That was in there, that was the biggest thing that they had in their minds. The settlement um, was 
firstly that um, all the documents around the um, expert reports, the data, would all be publicly available. We wanted this to be on the record so that people could see the evidence um, that we were going to use uh, in the case. So, so that's all. That's these are all public documents. Um, the second uh, really critical thing was that the police agreed to run two public inquiries into their, firstly their stop and search policies, but secondly their training on um, uh, multicultural policing. And um, so there were two aspects to this public inquiry. And what they did was they appointed um, independent experts to come and run those inquiries and they called on um, the community to participate in providing submissions, coming and meeting with them so that they could get those experts, could these independent um, experts could develop a full picture from not just within Victoria Police but also the Victorian public into the size of this problem. And those inquiries um, resulted in a report uh, called the Equality is Not the Same report that set off well actually started, so the police actually set up a whole new division, the Priority Communities Division, um, to, that focuses on the way it treats certain communities. So that was you know, a really big structural change in the bureaucracy of the police that, that um, was, was generated as a result of this, this claim. Um, but yeah, these, these two inquiries came to some really significant and important um, recommendations that unfortunately haven't been completely picked up at this stage. And one of the one of the key recommendations that came out of the inquiry into the police field contacts were that um, police should um, collect data on the uh, the race of people that they are the um, perceived race of people that they are stopping on and searching on the street. So um, that that was made by the independent experts. That recommendation. Um, that the police hired. Unfortunately, that while they've, they've got a process, uh, we've gone through a three-year equality, it's not the same process. Uh, we've had a trial into receipts um, for six months. Uh, receipts are where when the police stop a person, they issue that person with a receipt. Um, unfortunately, there is no, the police collected no data on how many of these receipts they issued. They didn't collect the race of who they were issuing those, those people, um, receipts to. So we, it's been a very ineffective trial from, from our perspective in terms of understanding what's going on. But what we have very importantly in Victoria is a, um, a policy now banning racial profiling from, by Victoria Police. So this is the, an Australian first to have this in, in policy um, and we have a level of ongoing commitment by Victoria Police to do something about this problem. So, so really I see this case as starting, opening um, a gateway to starting to resolve this very entrenched and difficult problem um, and we still have a long way to go but the case was critical in getting um, getting this issue getting the resolution of this issue started there has been some change in Victoria in terms of uh, police accountability over recent years and certainly some 
discussion, public discussion about independent investigation mm -hmm. of police in Victoria. Yeah. So do you have reflections on um, that and that particularly in connection with this case as part of the background? Yeah, um, it's interesting. The, uh, the issue around independent investigation is very linked to the issue of racial profiling. Um, it, it was one of the um, recommendations that people in writing their submissions to the Victoria Police were saying this needs to happen, we need, we need independent investigation. Clearly the, the case had examples of why we needed independent investigation, but there, it, that process has been going via a parallel, has been a parallel process, it hasn't been directly picked up by Victoria Police and it makes sense. Our settlement was with Victoria Police. The people that are going to make independent investigation happen is the government. So this is legislative change that is required and so that is a political process um, in order to get to get the government to legislate for independent investigation we need political pressure um, rather than litigation pressure in the way that we've applied to Victoria Police. Really the the work that's going on to make that would really make a difference is the government legislating for a new body. Did you get to the end of that and and need to step away from legal practice and into academic work, or um, is there a, is there a sense that you look back on this case as? Um, a landmark moment for you in your career, but also something which bent you out a little? Um, yeah, look, that's a really interesting question. And I think there've been stages all the way through that have been more difficult than later stages. So um, in 2013, I actually, I had a, a daughter. And so that really changed everything. And I had to get out um, of, you know, I wasn't working for a year over that period. So that was a dramatic change in my life at that point. And I, um, in a way it was planned to be at the end of this case so, so there was a level of planning there but um, yeah so initially hearing those those stories it yeah it was terrifying and the other thing that it's like I had no idea that this went on um, I grew up in a um, in Canberra which is a very white community uh, didn't haven't had any contact with the police myself um, I was deeply shocked to hear that people were experiencing um, the kind of racist and violent policing that they were they were telling me. And this is not just one story. This was again and again and again. I, it, it's hard to maintain a. Um, you cannot disbelieve. You might be able to have issues or lack of belief about one story, but when you hear it again and again and again from people who are clearly terrified, um, it, it really makes a big difference. So I remember thinking, we want to get restraining orders against these police officers. How are we going to protect these people? We need a refuge to put them in. So suddenly it sort of it changes your whole way of, of thinking about, um, about the legitimacy of our uh, system. And so yeah, that was a ma massive change for me to go, to go through that. The other thing was making a real commitment to those young people that I was going to help them solve this problem. And I think that commitment is why I'm still doing this work, is that the problem hasn't been solved. And um, so I just have to stick at it. <laughs>
Tamar continues to be involved in police accountability and racial profiling issues. She is doing her PhD on the topic. Thanks to her for having a conversation with me and for her ongoing work. Uh, once again, you can find the podcast at www.inthatcasepodcast.com. You can find it also on iTunes and you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at TownsendJoelC. Thanks for joining me and I look forward to joining you again for the next episode of In That Case.